0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the now nineteenth episode of the Bad Motor GP Show. As you see, we have a new guest, uh, Axel Pedersen. He's a motorcycle racer from Thailand and happens to or happened to be in the paddock during the Thai GP. So I thought it may be a great guest to have some insights. So, how are you doing? How did you enjoy the Thai GP?
1: Hey, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, the Thai GP was awesome. First Thai GP in three years, so the atmosphere in the paddock was a lot of excitement and the riders really happy to be there but then some rain and I don't know the weather was all over the place the whole weekend so it was it was a really interesting one I'm not sure how it was from the TV but on the ground it was it was a classic
0: yeah um how did you end up in Thailand
1: um well I was actually born in Thailand and my my parents work here and uh during covid I really got into Uh, the national championship in racing and yeah so currently sitting i think fifth in the national standings for supersport 400
0: so it's crazy you have been born in thailand and have you been living there ever since or did you uh, move okay so living here ever since nice okay because thailand is actually a country i I always wanted to visit because i uh, like to fight muay thai and yeah. obviously, then I I want to go to Thailand to train someday, you know. And it's definitely on my bucket list. So maybe maybe we yeah. can see each other there. But yeah, uh, yeah good. we are here to talk about the MotoGP race. We obviously had a wet race. And uh, before we dive into it, uh, I would like to cover first of all the Tom Booth Amos video for everybody who didn't see it. Check everything motor racing. There's a video on uh, Declan's Instagram where. Um, a mechanic is uh, kicking and punching Tom Booth Amos after he came back into the box. It's pretty shocking. And uh, what's even more shocking is that a lot of people came out and said like, okay, this is not the exception. And this is quite normal, not necessarily the violence part, but there are things that you normally don't see because they're, um, they're not published. And yeah, so what are your thoughts on the video? Have you heard maybe other stories?
1: Honestly, with the video, if my crew chief were to do that to me, I wouldn't be very happy. You know, we're, we always give it our best out on track. And if things don't work out, um, races in general, whether it's cars or bikes, usually like to find something to blame because, um, we usually find it hard to admit that it was our own issues or our own speed. And I'm not sure in that exact situation if it was Tom's fault or if it was a mechanic's issue, but whoever's Party, whoever, whichever party was in fault, it's not right. Yeah, I mean the most
0: shocking thing to me is uh, not necessarily that it happened, but that it happened three years ago. Nobody talked about it. Tom even said he kept his mouth shut. Other mechanics who were walking past it, nobody said a thing. And he said he was scared that he uh, may lose his job for the twenty twenty season and uh, the same person is now working at uh, Max Racing so this hasn't been a particularly nice stretch for uh, Max Biaggi and his reputation or his team's reputation in the paddock because everybody knows about the Aragon incident where some mechanics of his team disrupted Adrian Fernandez start from the box into the qualifying i believe it was and yeah now this so that he hires a a violent, a violent crew chief, which is not necess- necessarily something you want to uh, be associated with. So a tough stretch uh, for Max Biaggi, and it's it's really shit when you when you're a MotoGP fan, you see it from the TV, you see everything. Uh, that Donna wants you to see. And it's all great. It's all fun and games. But as soon as you dive into the paddock, and I had this process, I started my me patch in 2020. I was just a fan, everything was fine. And Then you start to talk to people who are in the paddock. You start to get to know people. They share stories. And it's so fucked up because, first of all, I experienced some bad things regarding the MotoGP world in Assen. I shared the story uh, on my Twitter and Instagram where uh, sexual harassment uh, towards my girlfriend when she went to the toilet or went to get some snacks um, from other fans and nobody cared. I mean, the Dutch... uh, People, for them, it's kind of normal. The security, uh, they didn't care. And Dorna and the promoter and Asen and whatever, they didn't care as well, uh, especially when we raised the issue and even reached out to Asen, the circuit. Um, And I know for a fact that they uh, knew what happened. They didn't care at all. So, uh, yeah, this is my personal experience. And to see this stuff happen over again, I've heard many stories and it's it's so shocking that of course idiots are everywhere stuff like this unfortunately happens, but it's more shocking to me that this uh, gets just wiped away. So it didn't even happen, you know?
1: Yeah. In the end, it's a, uh, it's a show for the sponsors and the sponsors need to have a platform that is family friendly to advertise on. And if Donna talks about these things publicly, um, it might not seem as a attractive space for advertisers to put their businesses. But I think Donna definitely behind the scenes should uh do something to increase um well being of the fans experience. Because in the end it's the fans that are the ones that advertisers want to sell their products to and if the fans aren't having a good time, they're not gonna come to racing. So in the end it's it's the fans that make the circuit go round. So yeah. Dorna should um optimize it for the fans
0: yeah of course especially fans are decreasing or fan numbers are decreasing especially on live attendance how was it in thailand
1: um definitely less than 2019 but bouncing back after three years of not having anything thailand still has a mask mandate so we're still not 100 percent out of covid yet but the attendance was really good it, the tickets did sell out but there was a typhoon just leading up in the week to um, Buriram race and it scared a few people from making the five-hour journey from the capital city of Bangkok to Buriram.
0: Okay yeah that's unfortunate uh, we obviously saw the typhoon in uh, Japan I don't know if it's the same one who traveled down. No it's
1: a different one it's okay. it was called Typhoon Noru and it came from around the the Philippines area.
0: Okay. So yeah, and then uh, obviously now with the rain, and we will cover all of of it later. uh, But yeah, regarding uh, the whole MotoGP situation, because right now we live in a time where we have the internet. So we saw it in Formula One that a lot of women raised the issue against sexual harassment in Austria and in the Netherlands and at the Dutch GP there in Zandvoort. And the same with MotoGP, we have voices who... Uh, start to raise the issue and collectively when everybody stresses it, then we may be able to change something. It may be not be able to deny it anymore. You know? So uh, I said it in my Instagram story. I will say it again. Uh, If everybody uh, who has a story to share or whatever, who don't want to share it because of their reputation in the paddock, maybe, or because they feel like they have no voice uh, I'm here to help. So we can do things collectively I know that uh, reporters are collecting stories about sexual harassment uh, towards women and uh, are trying to raise um to help the the women in the paddock to feel safer and the fans as well to feel safer so all of this is kind of happening but Dorna is basically not doing anything so we need to stress this issue and Apes Together Strong so Hopefully we can uh we can change something due to the power of the internet because that's our voice and collectively we can do something.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, really good point.
0: Yeah. And on to the next point. We had breaking news that MotoGP is heading to India and MotoGP is heading to Kazakhstan. So what are your thoughts there?
1: Well, I think India, um, there's many people there, as you know, with a population of over one billion. They're going to have no trouble filling out the seats if they uh, make it affordable for the average person. Um, There definitely is a lot of um, market for bike racing in India. I know one of my um, paddock compatriots in Thailand um, actually got signed to an Indian factory to help develop some of their racing bikes for the Asian Championships. So TVS Racing um, is uh, starting to send their riders to the Asian championships, and eventually to Europe, as well as Bajaj, um, which is an Indian bike manufacturer. You might've heard of it, but probably never have heard of it. They actually own a majority share of KTM. And um, that's actually a thing I've learned having chats with um the CEO of Bajaj in Thailand about setting up a racing team. And they're really, really keen and they really want to promote their bikes and their starting to branch out into Asia and eventually to the rest of the world.
0: I mean, we had an Indian company in Moto3 a couple of years ago with Mahindra, so this project unfortunately was shut down, but it was a good project and as you said india has so many people and so many motorcycle enthusiasts it's a huge market for uh, motorcycle brands especially the smaller ones uh, the whole southeast asian part of the world you probably know better than i do they are huge on those uh, smaller motorcycles and ktm honda yamaha they are all big in these smaller um, bike markets so ducati is a little bit left out there but <laughs> Who cares?
1: <clears throat> there are um, actually a lot of uh, Ducati owners in India, and because of the sheer amount of people, there's always going to be a lot of people that own Ducatis, even Aprilias in India. It's it's actually quite surprising how many owners there are.
0: Yeah, but um, the stereotype is that they are riding small yeah. bikes, riding scooters, small displacement so one two
1: five cc. That's the, it's the seller in um India, especially I know the the Duke two hundred from KTM is. One of the most popular bikes in india if for the uh, manual shifting bikes but the automatic ones are obviously much more popular as they are user friendly
0: yeah so india a huge market i love it i've been calling for an indian gp for a while now um my only concern is that the uh, racetrack is last used by formula one what was it like 2012 2013 so yeah, around then and and it's uh it's still set to be uh set for homologation of uh the FIA or FIM yeah. standards. So that could be an issue. We saw it in Finland that a uh, track who isn't ready has been put on the calendar and now Finland is nowhere. So um well, I'm a little bit skeptical. You,
1: yeah, same. Um, but I feel like everyone was as well for the Thai GP and Buriram. You know, you've, it's in the middle of nowhere. Buriram is uh, 350 kilometers away from the capital city and not much in the town except for a uh, football stadium. But um, it's turned out to be one of the most popular events on the Grand Prix calendar. So if, if all the stars align and the track is ready and the fans are out in full force, then I'm, I think it's set to be a great GP.
0: Yeah. And I really hope that they make it work because India, as I said, is a great market for all the manufacturers because of the sheer amount of people and the kind of people India has, because they are into uh, those small sectors especially. And uh, the Indian fans deserve one. There are a lot of Indian fans reaching out to me, for example. And I feel like India has all the potential in the world to be one of the best races in the calendar and i hope that they uh they manage to pull it off because the fans and the brands deserve it but the organization has to be set up properly you know yeah which uh brings us to kazakhstan because um kazakhstan is kind of a a weird one for me because uh first of all i've heard stories that uh One of Camelo's nephews, I believe, has some ties to Kazakhstan. So I don't know if it's a relationship or just, yeah, you know, family. I don't know. But apparently there is something in the back why MotoGP is going to Kazakhstan. I don't know about the fan community in Kazakhstan. I've never heard of a MotoGP fan from Kazakhstan. But I'm here to be uh, educated on this uh, topic. And uh, I don't know if the market in itself is attractive for um, for motorcycle brands therefore my first impression is like that. It's similar to Qatar there's a lot of money and that's why MotoGP is going there even though there's not a great interest in fans or in uh, or a great market for motorcycles so this would be my critique but I don't know because it's just a first impression I could be totally wrong because uh, as you know I don't know a flying fuck about kazakhstan and so yeah maybe you you know a little bit more there
1: well i think it it kind of sprung us all by surprise when we saw that MotoGP was going to be racing in kazakhstan but i i think it's awesome i think kazakhstan's definitely um coming out to the world um especially because it's be it was a soviet union country and now that they're having more and more visitors each year i think uh, a MotoGP gp race could be interesting but. I'm like you, where I, I'm not sure about the fan community in Kazakhstan, but they have a track, so there must be some sort of um, desire to race motorcycles.
0: Yeah, the images of the track, they're kind of weird because you have this one grandstand, a little bit like Qatar, you have one grandstand where the fans are supposed to be sitting and no grandstands elsewhere. Because whenever mm. you you go to Austria, you go to Italy, or you go to Spain, there are grandstands everywhere because the thing is packed, and it smells like a, a Grand Prix with uh, thirty thousand people maximum attending the Grand Prix. So I don't know if that's necessarily yeah. the type of Grand Prix a uh, MotoGP wants, especially when Formula One is selling out in Singapore with uh, three hundred thousand, and all of this, you know, there's always this comparison with Formula One, especially with people attending the races because they seemingly can't miss. And yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a weird one. But uh, actually, in the summer, when I've been to Austria, I talked to uh, Simon Patterson, the MotoGP journalist from the race. And he told me about Kazakhstan and said, hey, uh, they're working on this. So he proved, to, uh, he proved to be right on this one. So yeah, I'm excited. But with both of these GPs, I have a gut feeling that one of them won't work out because for some reasons or whatsoever, and they will replace it with Aragon. That's my gut feeling on it. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. It's just a shame that
1: they had to remove Aragon from the calendar as it is. Um, It proves to be one of the great uh, Spanish tracks. As you know, there are plenty of tracks in Spain and it is one of the newer ones, so the safety there is definitely better than some other tracks such as Jerez, where we saw um in 2020 when marquez returned or something in 2021 actually sorry where he actually went into the air fence and it looked quite dangerous
0: yeah with aragon the thing is i'm totally with you it's a great track but so is jerez so is catalonia and uh, valencia gets a lot of shit but but i've been there uh, last year and for the fans it's one of the best gps you mm. can attend the
1: whole motorcycle racing is inherently spanish so they Having four races in Spain, I think, is, is part of MotoGP in the last 20 years. Yeah, but you can't
0: have 25 GP, so you have uh, to cut down Spain, especially, because they have four races when you take Portugal into consideration, which is kind of next to Spain. Yeah. Um, then you have five uh, five races in this place of the world, so I would like to have a rotation calendar. Uh, which yeah, that would be a Formula great idea. One- yeah, which Formula One did in Germany back in the day when they had Hockenheim and Nurburgring uh, rotating each year. So uh, two GPs in Spain would be fun, uh, where you have Valencia and Aragon, for example, one year, and Jerez and Catalonia the, yeah. uh, the other year.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a great idea, honestly. And um, it it really depends on the year whether the racing is good or not, but. Um, Missing out on Aragon for the next five years would be, uh, I think, a loss for the sport.
0: Yeah. And uh, regarding the new calendar, there's a lot of traveling. And when you race, how much do you travel across Thailand?
1: Um, Well, I think traveling from Bangkok to Buriram is our biggest uh, drive. When we're towing the trailer with the bikes, it's about uh, six hours. And um, other than that, we go around maybe two hours maximum to the other tracks
0: how much does it affect your performance when you have a lot of traveling stress
1: um honestly yeah for buriram we have to wake up at around 4 a.m to uh get there for 10 a.m so we we get there and then we set up and then we're ready for the next day and that kind of affects me as i'm still attending school so it means i have to miss an extra day but also. I mean it's a lot of fatigue for my parents, you know, my dad has to drive all the way up there, or my mum. And then um they're usually resting for the rest of the day. And I have to help set up the pits. And yeah, by by the by about 8 p.m. we're like already in bed, ready to go to sleep. But and yeah, it definitely takes a toll on on the body.
0: Especially when I imagine that next year, when the calendar goes along as they planned, um, that you have to be like six or eight weeks away from home tra- traveling across Asia which will be extremely difficult especially when you do it late in the year when people have accumulated injuries people are a little bit yes. more stressed by the GPs in general and um, then you have like the maybe the worst time of the year to be in Thailand, for example, when you have rain season there. So I don't yeah, necessarily rain understand Rain season it.
1: is supposed to end in uh, late October. I think the best time for a race in Buriram would be probably the start of the year, maybe even replacing Qatar as the first GP could have been a good idea as um, leading up to Buriram, plenty of time to get things there. I think having Japan and Buriram one week after each other really puts a strain on the logistics system, especially because there is a runway in Buriram and an airport, but it's not long enough to land uh, large cargo planes such as the 747. So um, most of the cargo has to be uh, sea freighted in and then it accumulates over uh, a few months leading up to the GP. And of course, all the bikes are flown in, in the, the crates, but uh, really puts a big stress. And I'm honestly surprised that FP1 was not um, combined with FP2 like we saw in Japan.
0: Yeah. I mean, you pointed something uh, really important out, which I don't understand also. Because um, when I would set up a calendar, I would go to Australia, I would go to Thailand, I would go to Indonesia at the beginning of the year. And have it like in February or even January, I don't care, because it's summer there. So you can split the uh, overseas part into uh, two races and then go there whenever the time is right. And then you have the European summer maybe have a little bit more of an extended summer break. Or like this year, we have a five-week summer break, which is great if you're a rider, especially if you have so many races when sprint races come next year. Then maybe yeah. you, we should talk about two breaks when we have the first third of the season with a larger break, then uh, the middle part of the season with, with a larger break, and then the end part of a season. But it makes no sense for me to go to uh, Phillip Island. Now when there's, uh, it's freezing cold there, and go to uh, Valencia, for example, in late November. It, it makes no sense to me.
1: Yeah, actually in Phillip Island now, it's, it's starting to uh, heat up. As you know, Australian summer is in December. So um, it's coming out in spring right now. But in Thailand, we actually are in the northern hemisphere. So having a race in January would be better for the riders as ambient temperatures are usually below 30 degrees Celsius but I've been in Buriram probably mid-July where the track temperature is over 70 degrees and the air temperature is around 40 degrees. And I'm sitting in my leather suit and we um, I, I believe it's probably around 70 degrees inside my suit. that's If you're a rider and you want to train and you want to become really fit, just go ride in the Thai heat for 20 minutes, I, I tell you.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. It's just like going to the sauna. Yeah. Yeah, so um, regarding the MotoGP race in Thailand, we talked a lot about the calendar, we talked a lot about the other shit going on in the MotoGP world. So let's dive into the MotoGP race in itself, where Miguel Oliveira won. And it seemed like a copycat race of the Indonesian Grand Prix. We had dry free practices, dry qualifying, and um, then a wet race with uh, no preparation at all. And Miguel Oliveira made it work. I've been vocal about it and Miguel Oliveira in my opinion is the best KTM rider they have it's the best KTM rider in history and they let him go and whenever he has a bike underneath him which works which it does in the rain supposedly he is almost unbeatable he almost beat Mark Marcus at the Saxon ring last year he beat Fabio Quartararo in Catalonia he is so good if the bike works but KTM seemingly don't know what the hell they are doing and it's it's a wrong strategy if your bike is shit in the uh, dry and good in the wet so yeah but good ride for him very very mature i'm very happy for him so kudos to him
1: yeah for sure um miguel um you could see he was hunting jack jack uh started pretty well of course after bez had his drop one place penalty which we can get on to later but jack was out leading and i I saw Oliveira and I saw Zago as well, and I'm like these two are these two are going for Jack, and sure enough, um, Oliveira um overtook into I think the final corner into twelve and made it stick. Jack couldn't cut back and went a bit wide. You could see from the post race interviews that he was actually losing the front and the rear at the same time, so he just couldn't turn the bike and uh, yeah, Miguel Oliveira really really um you know did the job he needed to do um showing KTM what they'll be missing next year but also um for Ruslan Razali he'll be uh, excited or his new prospect and especially um Raul Fernandez on the Aprilia next year could be really exciting
0: yeah of course with KTM the thing is uh, a lot of people have high hopes for Jack Miller at KTM which I honestly don't have because the problem with KTM is they have this steel frame which nobody else runs and Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder are the only ones who are successful with the with the steel frame so when you have two riders who've uh, been with KTM from basically the beginning of their career I mean Brad Binder let's neglect Moto3 for a second. Brett Binder and uh, Miguel Oliveira have been on KTMs with the steel frame uh, since 2017 in Moto2 and it seems to pay dividends and on the other hand KTM doesn't uh, give those rookies or the other riders coming in um, not enough time to develop those skills so I don't know if Jack Miller necessarily can adapt quickly enough to the ktm because it seems to take everybody years
1: yeah i think having a steel frame in in grand prix is is pretty unheard of now even the the moto 3 and moto 2 are all using aluminium at the very least i know um, honda and stuff have been developing carbon frames and i spoke to uh some of the guys in ducati and some of the Olin's guys as well. I had dinner with a few of them, and they were the ones that are doing the Suzuki and the um, Ducati seem to have a much easier job than the guys doing KTM because obviously well, KTM don't do Olin's, but they they all talk to each other. They have WP, but um, the steel frame is just it's it's quite behind. Honestly, my production bike still has a steel frame, and it's um, the the steel tubing frame and i think ktm have thankfully moved away from a steel tubing but i think that frame is still too um too old to do anything
0: yeah i don't know if they're running some kind of hybrid nowadays i don't know ktm has to answer this question i can't but um it's kind of weird with the wp suspension as well because i had the um I had the suggestion that maybe the earnings is just better and it works just better. And KTM is running on bad material from the steel frame to the suspension. So uh, it's, I mean, it's hard for them because they sell all of their street bikes with steel frame, basically the same Mm -hmm. with Yamaha and their inline four. And if they move away from it, they basically say, okay, our way is shit. The other way is better. Yeah. So that's no way they will move away from it. No way Yamaha will come over with a V4 because it will basically say that all of their products are shit and the V4 or the <laughs> aluminum is
1: better. Yeah, and I think for sure, I've spoken to some of the KTM GP riders. I can't name names, but they uh, say that the bike, it doesn't turn, that uh, it's it's super heavy in the corners. They can't turn in corner entry they're losing so much just trying to get the bike to lean in and um if you watch the ktm on on tv you can see that it is only brad and miguel that can get that bike turned in and i think some other ktm riders present and past uh visually having trouble getting that bike to turn in
0: yeah, especially, I mean, we had this topic on the podcast a couple of times when you have people like Remy and Raul who absolutely murdered the whole Moto2 field last year. <laughs> Raul came in and as a rookie and he demolished everybody except Remy and those two get on the same bike and get outclassed by Fabio Di Gian Antonio, then something is wrong.
1: Yeah, honestly, um, Remy and Raul, they're... they're... Race times from last year have yet to be beaten. Uh, Honestly, uh, the only people that could have come close were Honda Team Asia in uh, Austria. But uh, with the new chicane, it kind of throws it all uh, into the water and we can't really compare. But uh, Remy and Raul are definitely two top-class riders and I think Remy is is happy to be making the move to World Superbike because I think he knows that's going to be a cool environment, no ride height devices, just just him and the bike. But um, he's definitely sounded really sad to be leaving the Grand Prix paddock where, you know, he, he made a name for himself.
0: Yeah, of course, especially when you know you can do it. Remy is a world champion, and I believe he sees like even a Luca Marini or somebody like this. No, not a not a world champion, but still a very solid rider, getting top fives. And you see this, and you know I'm capable of doing it. But unfortunately, I ride a bike which is shit, and my uh, my manufacturer won't give me time. And I don't know what the hell is going on with KTM. Yeah,
1: honestly, they say uh, they said Remy's the he was unprofessional, but I I doubt that from just what I've seen in the paddock just walking around he's the last he was the last rider to leave his box on the end of Friday practice you know he was dedicated to staying with his mechanics and working solutions out for the next day and he's been incre- um, increasing his performance incrementally throughout the year but of course everyone else makes developments but from where he was at the start of the year to where he's on the KTM now it doesn't look like a hell of a lot of progress but he's um, leaps and bounds in terms of feeling with that steel frame to where he was. And I think next year had KTM given him more time, uh, he could maybe do something better.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, you see it uh, even in the race where he's like top 10 uh, or 11, 12 or whatever for a short period of time. And apparently they had some issues with the front tire as well. So, yeah. and unfortunately
1: he crashed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame, especially with that lack of practice that you mentioned that they have to just hop on the full wet track on the front tire that they're not super sure about the setting. I, I think they can really look back at Indonesia for that, but you know that was the beginning of the year, this is the end of the year and um, obviously the track surface in Thailand is uh, according to one of the ri- according to the riders, it's it's the best for wet grip in, in the whole calendar. so they can't really base it too much off Indonesia.
0: Didn't Yamaha say that they had no grip at all and the other to grab the grip in the, at the track uh, was low and it's not <laughs> comparable to Indonesia because Indonesia was so high? That's what yeah, I, um,
1: that's well, you can see that Yamaha weren't doing quite well, so maybe it's the bike and the asphalt um, characteristics. But John McPhee and Jack Miller seem to love the uh, grip characteristics, so it could be working for specific bikes such as the KTM and the Ducati.
0: Yeah, of course. So, uh, which brings us to a very interesting topic, which is the championship right now, because Pecco finished in a very, very mature third place. There was a lot to lose for him, but he didn't. He stayed cool. And especially when you consider that wet races haven't been his uh, strong point. Over the last uh, (laughs) couple of, uh, yeah, when you take Japan into consideration. Even looking
1: at uh, Indonesia. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, he had like one point there. Yeah, so uh, you have this. Then Fabio had a catastrophic race. He didn't even want to talk to the media afterwards because he was so pissed off and Cal Crutchlow said uh, that everybody at Yamaha had the same problem and the front tire was just cooking uh, during the warm-up lab even. And therefore, they couldn't overtake. Frankie said that he had a very, very good pace, but simply couldn't overtake. And uh, basically, what was said, I believe, by Crutchlow was that uh, the wet race basically maximized Yamaha's problems and made them worse in in terms of, I believe the braking stability of the Yamaha in the wet was nowhere because of the front iron. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, which was very, very unfortunate for Fabio
1: because especially in a wet fast. race, you have to, yeah, in a wet race, you really have to have good drive on the straights because it's, it's the probably the easiest part of the lap in terms of uh, a wet track. You know, you can make a lot up in the straights just with the sheer top speed. You know, you could have a mediocre rider, on the Ducati, going super fast in the wet just by going fast in the straights and taking it easy in the corners. Whereas a Yamaha rider will have to push in the corners and because on the straights, they're a little bit slower.
0: And it feels like over the season that Yamaha, especially Fabio, makes up all of his time on the braking because he is such a motherfucker on the brakes. And if that doesn't work, and the, the whole other bike part of the bike doesn't work, then, I mean, Yamaha has rear grip issues since forever, since Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales. They have no top speed at all. The cornering always has been their uh, strong point, but Ducati seem to be uh, catching up on this one. And the braking, yeah. if that goes, what what else is left, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, post-race, actually, I was in Jack Miller's box and um one of the Ducati bosses, I'm not sure if it was Palo Paddy or Gigi Delinia, but he, he comes in and goes to Jack's suspension guy Reese, who's actually from New Zealand, and and says you're a wizard, you're a fucking wizard. <laughs> because um, he said Jack said that that bike um, was the best wet setup he'd ever had, and, and as you can see, that they're bringing in new guys and they're really just getting that bike to turn. Even whether it's the setup or the suspension and geometry of that bike, it's it's really working out now.
0: I mean. Fabio was a long distance away from Peko before he crashed in Assen, which says a lot because Assen is not a Ducati track. Assen is like the perfect Yamaha track, but he still got his ass whooped by uh, Peko in this and um, his tracks. That says a lot about Ducati and the state of Ducati.
1: Yeah. They I think now it's, it's, yeah, Ducati, there, there will always be a Ducati on the podium, I think, this year. <laughs> Um, it's just, I'm surprised with the Aprilia as well. That's That's been turning out to be one of the best bikes on the grid, but that um, was nowhere in Buriram either.
0: Yeah, I believe they uh, brought a harder rear tire, basically the same they did in Indonesia, which uh, seems to be an older version of the Michelin rear tire.
1: Yeah, Um, and even um, Paula Spagro was complaining about that in Indonesia, how they brought new tires for the test but then didn't bring the same tire allocation to the race and it really messed him up. And they like to bring the hard rear tire, even wet and dry, because uh, it can handle the temperature. And with the extreme heat that could happen in Ram, there's the danger of the tire tearing open.
0: How much did the track dry up over the race? Because it seemed like that, as you see on the screen behind us, it was quite wet at the beginning, especially uh, yeah. coming from that Moto Two race. But at the end, it seemed better. But
1: towards the end, honestly, I, I'd say we were about three laps away from Bradbinder putting slicks on. <laughs> it was it was almost it was almost dry, and you could see that post race there was a dry line there. And, The grip there was no standing water except at turn eight where there's a little bit of a um a trough of water let's say
0: okay so yeah it uh, should have been um, beneficial to put on the harder uh, uh, wet tire towards the end but i guess towards the beginning the softer would be would have been better you know
1: yeah i think with the riders how wet it was in the beginning there would be not too much wear on the soft and i think for sure they probably wouldn't have uh, struggled with the soft.
0: Okay. Yeah, and with Aprilia, it's another very unfortunate weekend because Aleish can't seem to catch a break. I mean, he had all the tools in his toolbox to win the world championship, especially with Fabio struggling now, with uh, Pekka struggling at the beginning of the year. But there are some... Kicks between the legs uh, for Alain, <laughs> some uh, with uh, his own fault, like the crash in Silverstone, which seemed to be a golden opportunity for him, and then uh, the echo mapping he had in in Japan, which was very very unfortunate. But yeah. uh, when you when you take a season, then I feel like bad luck cancel each other out because Peko has been taken out by by Taka in in Catalonia. Um, Fabio has been taken out by Mark Marcus in Aragon, and Aleix had the unfortunate situation in uh, here in Japan, and yeah. this kind of equals each other out. But what counts then is what you make with the rest. And when you have races like Aleish had in uh, in Silverstone, or which uh, he had now again in um, in Thailand, it's very very unfortunate, and this can't happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think um, for Aleish, you know, he his head's still in the game. I spoke to him on Tuesday pre-race and he seemed very relaxed and like he wasn't even worried about what happened in Japan. You know, he's definitely got the championship winning pedigree, even if it is from 2004. <laughs> I mean, it's still in him. And I think this year it's really brought out the uh, the fighter back in him.
0: Yeah, but it seems like that Aprilia is somehow new to the whole championship game you know i mean they've been in moto gp for a while but they've never been on top and that there are some struggles which doesn't happen in yamaha and ducati you know
1: yeah i think the bike's good and um the uh the guys uh there are definitely talented at setting it up but you come to a track that you haven't been at in three years and they haven't had any people to like ride it and develop it You know, you look at the European tracks, they've had Davi on that bike. And I think Davi definitely played a large role in getting that bike to where it is today. And obviously bringing in Vinales is definitely a big uh, power play from Aprilia. But now they're in a position, yeah, where they don't have much experience. But honestly, that will come with time. Even if it's not this year for Aprilia, it looks promising for the next five years.
0: Yeah um if i was a prairie i would have just put the austria setting on there because the track's basically the same <laughs> so this this should work <laughs> works yeah hard
1: exactly um the one thing about buriram though that is different to austria is that there's the corners tighten a lot more you look at the middle sector of buriram and um austria in buriram um, in austria sorry it's a uh, kind of a uniform corner where there's not too much trail breaking. but in Ram you look at turn five it tightens so much and um it catches the riders out like even on friday a lot of riders were going wide there and it, it really um destroys the front tire
0: especially you have to hold a very tight line to to the e- yeah. entry uh, to the exit of the corner to get good drive uh, out of it and to fl- um to uh to go right in the following turn. So you have to keep it to the left very much, uh, I would assume. Yeah. yeah. and yeah, um, it's,
1: You're in that corner and it's it's destroying your left tire. And then even at turn 12, the braking zone is so uh, hard for trail braking as well that it destroys the right side of your tire. So uh, at least it's balanced, but it's definitely uh, very hard on the tires.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, with LA, she had this penalty. So you are a racer? What do you make of this penalty?
1: Mm, I think Aleish was a bit out of line there. You know, he's, he's trying to make passes that he um, his bike is not ready to do. I think he just needed to bite his time. There was 25 laps for them to play around. And I know you've got to make the pass when there's a gap, but there wasn't really a gap. And, you know, break, uh, Brad Binder breaks really late. And I think for Aleish, I think that was not the place to pass him.
0: So do you think the penalty was the right decision?
1: Yeah, in, in the end, the penalty doesn't change the event. And I think it's, it's racing. I think Aleish shouldn't have done it, but the penalty is not going to teach him anything because you know, you're know you a racer, you're always going to go for the gap. And uh, yeah. I think the penalty didn't change much of the final result. So it, it doesn't because really matter.
0: I feel like if it, has been a, if it had been a dry race, then I would understand the penalty more, but it's basically his first breaking zone in the wet uh, in yeah. race conditions, and he just made a minor mistake, but nothing happened. I Brad think Binder even even crash. more
1: so the the Bezecchi penalty is is a great example of that. Like it's the first corner in a wet race. Where do they know where to like? How do they know where to break? And I think that Jorge Martin really. Uh, you know put the pressure on Bezecchi to force an error, but bezecchi you know didn't chicken out he uh just stuck it straight straight down the line and um Jorge Martin, you know he he could have just stood it up, you know, but bezecchi that that was real racing there, and I think there was no outbreaking himself or anything wrong there. bezecchi's turning in, he's holding the line, he's got to do what he wants to do to make the corner,
0: yeah. The Alage penalty, I don't uh, see it because to me that this is not a penalty. But the Bizeki penalty outrages me because a, it's the first corner as you said, and yeah. he has been—he's uh, a rookie. He ha- has never been in uh, in a race like this, and or. You could argue uh, Indonesia, but he wasn't on pole in this uh, race. So you don't know what the fuck you're doing in this situation. Even if you're a MotoGP rider, you're basically going by your instinct. And he made a mistake. Okay, cool. Happens. So he, get, he runs wide. And a lot of people, um, Jorge Martin ran wide as well. He didn't get a penalty pedro acosta ran wide in moto two he didn't get yeah. a penalty so it's i don't first corner understand. exactly yeah i don't i don't understand if you put a asphalt uh patch there okay cool mm. let the riders use this uh, when they make it, made a mistake and let them recover but to have this drop one position penalty which i've never seen in moto gp i only saw it in formula one when you overtake off track mm. it's yeah. It's outrageous to me. It's it's so yeah, stupid. Yeah, it's,
1: it's it's motorcycle racing on the first lap. You can't really decide one position. And if Bezeki like lifts off the throttle to drop one position, more riders are just gonna follow through and uh, it's just gonna kind of mess up his whole race. As you can see, like right there, Jorge Martin is, you know, trying to send it down the inside of Bezeki, but Bezeki's he's actually on the racing line. You know, Martin is off the line and trying to gain an advantage, which it's his right, it's the start of the race. But Pozzecchi's just swinging around the outside, and you know, forcing Martín to check up and run wide. I mean, that's that's Martín's fault for being there. In my yeah, opinion. to me,
0: to me, it's just a uh, an instance where you count it as a point for panel for track uh limits violations, but mm-hmm. when you have like three, four, or five of them, you get a long lap. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's the same with the race. Um, when you when you go off the uh curb for. Two centimeters or for two meters it's basically the same penalty wise you know you yeah. uh, you can't do too much of it but to have this stupid drop one position which disrupts his whole rhythm he's been going backwards ever since and uh, to me it's just outrageous
1: yeah i think uh, I, if Dorna really want to impose something for the riders as a warning system there could be a black and white flag which we don't actually see very much in moto gp which is just warning for on track behavior and honestly that was that would be a stretch to even give him the black and white flag for that instance but it, in the end it doesn't affect his uh track position
0: yeah the flip side of the coin would be obviously that if you don't penalize this behavior everybody would just go white in the first corner have better drive uh, out of the corner and uh, gain positions this way which to me would be illegal would be gaining positions uh um uh, not on the track um gaining positions off track this but he didn't gain or lose any position yeah. you know he he had no if, advantage if I, if I'm being honest
1: yeah at, at turn 1 in buriram i i frequently run in the green on the first lap you know it's it's pretty standard that you know things can get a bit bit hectic and he didn't gain an unfair advantage you know he started first and ended first by turn 3 you know so it's 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 the start of a race. Anything can happen. And if you put a gravel trap there, yeah, maybe he runs into the gravel. But maybe he uh, tries to keep it on the circuit. But in the end, it's really just going to disrupt everybody and make things a bit more dangerous. Because if you have gravel there, right on the edge of the circuit, you know, they're all just going to, like, keep it tight. But then someone's going to slide out because they're going in hot and they're going to turn in extra. And then they'll slide out into the gravel and then you're just going to force more crashes in the end he was avoiding martin to making contact which is re- really responsible because he doesn't want to you know mess up another ducati's race as well as his own but yeah it's 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 hats racing but it's a penalty that shouldn't have been uh, um, awarded to him
0: do you do it on purpose to run wide or is it just on uh, accident
1: um when i get pushed out wide yeah i i just go out there and i i won't like actively lean on other riders to make sure I stay in the track. You know, it's the first lap. I want to give everyone room as well as get the best start I can. If I'm on the inside and I, I'm pushing riders wide, you know, they, they have the option to slow down and let me in, of course. But you're a racer. You're not going to do that. You know, you force the error. That's what you do. So um, I, I would personally not worry about running out wide if it was going to happen. I, if I was Pazeki, I wouldn't actively think, Oh shit! It's the race start. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run wide. Let me let me shut the throttle and not run wide. No, no way. What the would safest you say thing for him to do would run wide? Would be run what, wide.
0: What would you say? How much of an advantage uh, do you gain by running wide and having better drive out of turn one?
1: Um, not much actually, because it's soaking wet, and I don't know if you saw the Moto Two crash of Cameron Bobier. But the paint in Buriram, when it gets wet, it's it's literally an ice rink. So if anything, it gave him a disadvantage by having to run onto that paint, because I think he had to apply less throttle. If not, like he could keep the same throttle, but that's going to make it much more sketchy for him and probably uh, a worse drive.
0: Okay. And I don't remember the first corner in Austria, but I can almost guarantee you that a lot of riders has been, have been uh, running yeah. wide there and there. I think no I remember Marquez
1: running fairly wide there. Um, Not this year, of course, but uh, last year or whenever he was racing there last. And uh, he didn't gain an advantage, but he just kind of stayed in the same place. And then, yeah, that was that was it but i think because it's at the leaders it's a high profile place to be i think donna wanted to do something just to kind of say it's not okay if you're the leader and you run wide into the into the green
0: to me it's just uh stupid from the beginning to the end i mean the race Mm -hmm. direction fucked up once again and they potentially destroyed Marco bezekhi's first win or first podium you know
1: yeah, I think for him, that's that's really tough, you know, to have such a good result on Saturday, breaking the lap record, and then to have it kind of ripped away from you on Sunday is is harsh, but he's a rookie. He's got many years of fighting left in him, and I'm sure we haven't seen the last of a Bezeki leading into the first corner.
0: Yeah how much would you say would this disrupt your rhythm if you are in, in Bezeki's position you have like a 1.5 second lead and then you get the sign drop one position how much does it fuck with your head fuck with your rhythm
1: it it would suck more being in Bezeki's position because of the 1.5 second lead you know that's he has to lift off probably for I, I'd say half a second if not more and on a MotoGP bike that's you know, that's losing probably around 20 kilometers an hour on the straights, you know, basically put him on a Yamaha (laughs) and um, he's going through the corners and you're, you're focused, you have tunnel vision and then you see drop one position. You're like, what, what for, what for the first thing you'll be like questioning why that's stupid. I don't want to do it, but then you just kind of forced to do it. Otherwise you'll get a longer penalty. And then you drop the position, you're pissed off, you're getting passed and, your whole mentality is just gone from there,
0: yeah, because he was in a still in a good position, he was in second, he was between Jack Miller and Pekka Ben-Yai, if I remember correctly. But then, yeah. somehow, something changed with his pace. And to me, from the outside, it's pretty easy to explain that when you, uh, I believe, he left Jack Miller through after turn one, so he was basically, as you said, uh, lifting. Um, or getting off the throttle for a good amount of time and then you have to calculate that the braking point afterwards into is it turn 2 no. or turn 3 in? turn 3 uh, yeah right. okay because i don't understand when necessarily this is a turn and when not no on, but... on the
1: gp bikes in the dry they do have to turn a little bit but yeah it's not really a corner
0: but okay but yeah your braking point uh, is different then and if you have all those things i believe it could uh, it could Impact your race and your rhythm a fair bit.
1: Yeah, just they're doing, they're like robots. They're going to break at the same place every lap if they can and having to lift off and then break somewhere else. It's just, I think it's worse than having a long lap penalty. Yeah. Because it's, you have to choose kind of if you see long lap penalty, you know exactly where to go. And then throughout the weekend, you can plan. And you can try and go through it, but for Bezeki, he, he has to lift off and then he doesn't know where to break for turn three, and then he'll get passed by more riders. And then as soon as you get passed by more than three riders, you start getting demoralized, and that's, yeah, that's kind of the end of your race. And uh, we talked
0: about Jack Miller now when uh, when he took the lead then. He was very good, unfortunately, beat by Miguel Oliveira from his perspective. but he has now two very, very good races in motiki and in in Thailand. So where do you see him in the championship fight?
1: <laughs> yeah, he's he's sneaking up on the the leaders. Um, if he had a won that race, he would have been fourth in the championship at only thirty five points away. but I think having second makes it a bit tough for him. He's got 40 points to make up in three races. So 75 points up for grabs and only 40 points needed. Um, Mathematically, it's not out of reach, but Fabio, Alation, Bagnaya will need to crash or have technical issues for probably more than one of the next upcoming races.
0: Yeah. I said it before we went to uh, Japan that the overseas races will be a huge wildcard for the championship and right now it uh proves to be true because shit is hitting the fan and yeah. <laughs> um and I can definitely see Jack Miller having three very very solid races but I don't see him winning the championship by himself it it would have uh would need to involve a poor race of um, yeah. Pecco and Fabio, and then another very good good race for Jack Miller and mediocre performances from those. Because when let's say he wins out, he has uh, seventy five points, and he has to uh, gap uh, thirty five points, which means that he has like roughly in three races worth thirty five, roughly twelve points to uh, to make up per race.
1: Her race, yeah,
0: which is a a big ask.
1: Yeah, I think for Fabio, will do probably very well in Phillip Island. I believe you know it's a track that requires high corner speed and some hard braking as well, especially into um the corner after Stoner corner. But uh, going to Sepang, you know Yamaha have great backing there, and the track uh, really suits Fabio as you know in twenty nineteen. I think he. Was pretty close to the top of preseason testing. Um, although those two very long straights could throw the Ducatis back into the mix where they uh, belong. <laughs> um, and then that leads us into our final race in Valencia, where we know Jack is really strong from his fight with Morbidelli a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, with uh, Malaysia, it's a little bit tricky because the Ducati is good everywhere. You know, but yeah. the Yamaha has all the corners where we have these long sweeping uh, kind of chicane's, these S's and yeah. uh, these heartbreaking points into like turn one. Then what is it? The after those tight turn corners, turn five, you, the final yeah. corner as well. Yeah, um, turn and then 10. the corner before you go on the uh, long straight uh, for the last corner i don't know which turn it is
1: i'm not but... sure what number it is as well but yeah yeah that that corner as well as the the very final corner all very hard braking zones
0: yeah and fabio is as i said he's a motherfucker on the brakes but he has <laughs> one big problem which is uh called a ducati the ducati is good on the brakes <laughs> the ducati is good on acceleration and the ducati is good on the corner speed and you can't overtake them if you're not in front uh, of them in the qualifying you know when you are yeah. Fifth and Pecco is first, Jack Miller is second, and let's say Jorge Martin is third, and Abastini is fourth, you can't overtake them. That's the big problem of MotoGP right now, because when you're, uh, Fabio, when when do you overtake them? You have no power outside of the corners. You have all the um, breaking stability of the Ducati, which makes it hard to pass into the corner. I mean, passing a KTM would be easy. But Mm -hmm. on Aprilia, they have a little bit more troubles on the brakes. But uh, the Ducati, it's one of the strong points. And the combination of very good acceleration and very good braking is pretty hard to beat. I guess I don't tell you uh, anything new here. Um, So I see Fabio needs to be good in qualifying, which is... Unfortunate because the Ducati is so damn good on qualifying. I can see him winning in in Australia, but I don't see him uh, being good in the final two races. Unfortunately,
1: honestly with Jack, he's just off the back of probably his two best ever performances in MotoGP. He's going to get married next week and then it's his home race. I think he's high on life right now and um, enjoying everything. And, In Australia, I know there's going to be a lot of pressure, as we saw with Chantra and Moto2 for your home race. But um, if he can just get himself into a sort of mentality like Ayagura was last week in Japan and just focus himself, uh, we know he can go out and win it. We know he has the speed. Obviously, in 2019, he took third there when the Ducati wasn't super strong in the corners. So I'm excited to see where he stands this year.
0: Yeah, especially uh, when Ducati has all the Ducatis in front, which brings us a little bit to the next topic, which will be Jean Zako and the whole team order thing. Um, but it's it's tough to beat one Ducati, but it's even tougher to beat five of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what sets Fabio apart. You know, he's the only one who's really taken the fight to them other than um, Marquez this weekend. But um, Fabio is putting up a good fight. He, he always does, and... He uh, sneaks some interesting overtakes, like we saw him on uh, Jack Miller in Austria at the chicane. That kind of came out of nowhere and sprung Jack by surprise. It just depends what tyres they bring to Malaysia, as well as um, what the weather's like in Phillip Island. You know, it's, it's starting to be summer in Australia. It could have um, rain. And I think um, Fabio, he, he, was, he looked like he was okay in the rain mid-year especially in the beginning in indonesia but towards the end of the year he seems to be struggling a lot in the wet
0: yeah yeah especially when your front tire isn't working and that's the only thing which works for your bike you know but uh yeah in australia there are not many hard acceleration zones you have a very flowing type circuit which should benefit him and um but which also should benefit the Ducatis in a way, you know. And yeah. uh, what did you make of the whole Juan Zako pecco Banyaya thing during the Thai GP?
1: I mean, in the end, Ducati's got a championship to win. So uh, if I were the bosses of Ducati, I'd be using everything in my power to ensure that he wins the championship.
0: That's a very fair assumption because at the end of the day, it's about money. And if you have the MotoGP World Championship on the contract, you are selling a whole lot more bikes. And yeah. uh, when you are in Joan Sacco's position and your boss tells you, hey, be easy on Pecco, you do it because A, Ducati saved his career. We talked about it on the last episode of the podcast. In length, he was basically out of MotoGP after KTM. And then Avincia came out and uh, signed him. He did very well. Then Ducati promoted him to Pramac. He's doing very good. He's doing a lot of testing for them as well. And he's yeah. very valuable to the team. Why would you fuck it up? Because John Zacco isn't, isn't Fabio Cotavaro. He isn't Peku Bagnaglia. He isn't Marc Marquez. He isn't this good that he can do no matter what he wants and won't get fired he needs to behave in a way to, in order for Ducati to keep him uh, for the longer period of time. And uh, also he has an employee which tells him, Hey, be easy on him. So you do it. I mean, how would you, how would you react if you are John Zako in this situation, especially considering the fact that you haven't won a MotoGP race that you probably think, okay, I could win this motherfucker. How would you,
1: I mean, it's, that's a really good point considering, you know, he hasn't won a race, but it's also, he hasn't tasted the glory of winning a MotoGP race. And I think if he, if he won in Japan or something, he'd be so much more hungry. You know, he, he'd want he, he would want that feeling again to uh, stand on the top step. But, um, you know, your boss is your boss in the end you're there to do a job and if you're not doing the job to satisfaction you know they can bring someone like Marco Bezzecki into that Pramac team and have him ride the bike and there would be probably no love lost between them
0: yeah of course I mean for Ducati it would be probably better to have an all-italian lineup and they could pull it mm-hmm. off so but yeah Joan uh, I totally get it and with team orders and people getting angry at him i mean if you're at work and your boss tells you to do x and you don't do x he will uh probably uh whoop your ass metaphorically yeah not like uh tom booth <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh if you do it repeatedly you get fired
1: yeah and i think zyko you know he's his time will come. <laughs> I mean, we've been saying that for a few years now, but um, he's a bit like Aaron Canet, where the win just isn't—it isn't coming. But if it's if it doesn't happen in the next three races, I I almost guarantee it'll happen next year at some point.
0: I mean, if you can't win on on, on a Ducati, then you can't win at all.
1: That's a, yeah. That's very fair.
0: Yeah, and um, with. Fabio and the whole Ducati thing uh, he said something very very funny which was he hopes that uh, Mark Marquez's comeback will put a little bit more chaos on uh, the Ducatis Uh, but (laughs) since he said that all Marquez did was help Ducatis in a way in Aragon which is obvious but also like in uh, Japan or now if Marquez wasn't there Fabio would have been one position ahead and Pecco uh, wouldn't be um, wouldn't be further ahead, you know? So first of all, this is a funny uh, Marcus stat, which I'd like to bring up. And uh, the the following point is, what do you make out of Marcus' performance in the wet right now? Yeah.
1: So Marcus in the wet, uh, he's always been pretty good in the wet. You know, we saw like in Le Mans, even when he made his return, when Jack Miller won, he, he was looking pretty racy, but then he was just rushing himself, wanting to get back on the top step this year he's much more focused you know he's happy to take the fourth or the fifth place you know and and i think that's uh, a mature marquez you know i'm i'm not the biggest fan of marquez you know i'm not spanish or a, a honda owner but i think what he's done for the sport is remarkable and i think it's it's good to have him back if you know if he's not dominating but i would really like to see another marquez win where he's um Fighting one of the rookies, you know, and I would like to see a direct head-to-head between Marquez and Fabio Quartararo in a on-track battle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been saying this a long time now. Uh, I will die someday. Very, very uh, peacefully. If Marcus does the equal Valentino Rossi and Valentino in uh, Valentino Rossi in MotoGP championships, but yep, that doesn't mean I uh, want him to retire because MotoGP is always more fun when he's there. And either you hate him or you love him, but he brings in excitement to the sport, which is very, very uh, good, especially uh, when you have an. A uh, promoter like Donna, who's absolutely incompetent of marketing everybody else, so you have to have Mark Marcus on there to uh, to connect with fans. And he was even shown on the broadcast uh, when he's doing nothing. You know, it's just markets, you know. But um, mm-hmm. with his performance, I somehow expected more. I'm a little bit disappointed because he has always been so good in the wet. He was on pole position in the wet. The wet should neglect uh, a lot of disadvantages from the Honda. I feel like, and uh, Marcus is always such a such a great master of these rain conditions. Where I thought, okay, it's not as physically demanding on the body because he isn't at one hundred percent right now, as uh, it might be in the dry. So I thought, okay, maybe this could be the day uh, where Marcus wins. He won every Grand Prix except this one in Thailand. He obviously likes the track. He is uh, pain-free right now, according to Mark Marcus. And therefore, I kind of expected more, but maybe my expectations are a little bit off because it's Mark Marcus. And it if it would have been everybody else, I would have said, okay, uh, what was it? Fifth place is totally fine, you know? Mm.
1: I think just the tr- everything from the wet last week to this week is a little bit flipped. You know, um, Jack Miller was fast in the wet this time, but in qualifying last time he only qualified seventh, and uh, Miguel Oliveira wasn't anywhere on the front row last uh, time in the qualifying in the wet, but um, he uh, seemed to bring it out quite nicely in the race. I think maybe just the characteristics of Motegi. Um, just suited the Honda a little bit more, you know, it is their track pretty much. They test there quite often. So I think they just had a few things in the bag there, but I think coming to Buriram, it's basically, it was Marquez's track up until uh, Miguel Oliveira took the crown. You know, he was the only winner in the last two years in 2018 and 2019. And uh, coming here, I feel like he wanted to do the hat trick and, um, take the win again but you know he's not super hungry and he knows this year he's not in the championship fight he can just finish fifth and develop the bike you know the fans are happy because they see him and honestly fans now are so tired of seeing him get hurt that if he finishes i think they're like nice he finished like (laughs) that's awesome
0: yeah i mean when you're mark marcus you know that another high side could end your career anytime and he came out and said i won't change my approach i won't do this i won't do that but i believe that indonesia and the surgery now gave him like a real warning where you know okay i have to be more careful and i believe if it's 2021 marcus he would have gone for it and uh be yeah. more aggressive and didn't care but it's a good sign that he seemed to have learned his lesson that it's sometimes okay to bring home a fifth place and not push every time. I mean, the last time he um, had a horrible injury was in Indonesia and yeah. he high sided in warm up and nobody else did, you know, because it felt like Mark Marcus was pushing it a little bit too much where nothing was on the line. And Hopefully he learned his lesson because nothing is on the line, as you said. Track time is valuable for himself and his arm, as well as uh, for Honda. So this is a very, very solid race. But considering everything, I would have expected a podium or even a win uh, from Mark Marcus because he is Mark Marcus. He's like the most talented rider on the grid, Uh, maybe the most talented rider ever. And I, uh, I believe so,
1: honestly. I yeah. think I think in Valencia, we could see something special. You might just say, oh, it's the good season end break after this. Maybe we'll have to just give it a shot and see where it takes him.
0: Yeah, especially uh Valencia's an anti clockwise circuit. Left corners tend to uh be more or be less stressful on his uh, arm, on his right arm. So I could see him. The only problem is that the Honda is shit, you know.
1: I mean, hopefully over the summer they can uh, do some special wizardry in Japan and bring out a nice bike for next year. But as you know, everybody's going to up their game for next year. Let's see what Aprilia do over the summer break. I mean, winter break, sorry. Um, that could be really interesting to see how they build on this season. But Honda, you know, they really need to get their act together. But with Joan Mia coming in, and uh, even Alex Rins, you know, he's a handy rider at some times. He could um give them some advice on uh, where it can be improved. But we all know that Paula Spigro was no slouch on the KTM and coming to Honda, he just couldn't ride it. And that kind of brings me on to Joanne Mir and his style, I believe, won't suit the Honda at all.
0: There are a lot of people who said Joanne Mir on the Honda will open some eyes and surprise a lot of people. And I just don't see it. I just don't yeah. see it because A the Honda is shit and when you have uh two new riders and a kind of new rider in Mark Marcus because he hasn't had that much time on this bike and with Honda the whole problem is that they had the perfect bike for Mark Marcus in 2019, 2020. It was just his bike and they went away from this because nobody else could ride it. So if you listen to Mark Marcus, he says, okay, I want the 2019 bike back, obviously, because that's his bike. I talked with Paul Espargaro at uh, Rocco's Ranch in January, and he told me that the old Honda was so balanced towards the front and and had no rear grip at all and nobody could ride it except Mark Marcus and the new Honda is a little bit more balanced where you have good rear grip and a lot of Honda riders are complaining about the lack of front feeling so that's basically the thing with the Honda what stayed January what Paul told me I guess they developed uh, since uh, quite a few parts on the bike but uh, in general this is not Mark Marcus's bike then you have Joran Mia and you have Alex Rins coming in new and you have Taka Nakagami he was only there because Ayokura didn't want to uh, race with Honda next year. So uh, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel for Honda to be honest, because something is wrong with this company at the moment because they put all their eggs in one basket since 2013 and it paid out for them until Mark Marcus got hurt. And now they're in a situation where Ducati has an armada of bikes on the grid where everybody can be competitive on. Then you have the Aprilia's next year. You have four Aprilia's who are very good. I believe they will do another step forward the Yamaha, when you give the Yamaha a good engine, is a very, very solid bike. Yeah, and it looks like a, they
1: have got a new engine. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Suzuki
0: yeah. is the absolute beauty of a bike. It's so unfortunate that they leave, which is, yeah. talking about Honda, very good. But Honda is up in the shitbox category with KTM. At least the KTM works in the wet. So it's it's not looking bright for them. So, yeah.
1: If I were Honda, honestly, I'd be looking at buying... The um, remnants of the Suzuki team, um, whether that be the engineers and the old bikes, just to try and pull it apart and work out what they've been doing. I think the Honda engine is a good engine, but I think the um, just the even showing them like outsourcing their swing arm design to Calex shows that they're they're in a bit of trouble and they're struggling.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, the swing arm is coming from Kalex, and I would assume that they're talking with Kalex about other things as well. And they are copying Aprilia's bike. So if you go back in time and tell somebody like in 2016, that Honda or 2017, whatever, uh, select the year, that Honda is copying the Aprilia and is uh, sourcing uh, things out to Kalex, they will say you're out of your mind.
1: <laughs> yeah that's very true even even 2019 the Aprilia wasn't doing too well like that was yeah. prime honda and say you know just three years later that honda's finishing towards the bottom of the standings you know they've had races where not one honda has finished in the points with for the first time since i think it was 1982 and that's just insane to think about
0: that's that's in, that's scandalous for the biggest motorcycle company in the world because when you put all your eggs in one basket with mark marcus and develop a bike only for him okay cool it didn't work out from 2020 onwards okay cool just develop a new bike but that they are not able to develop a bike which can be ridden by uh, a lot of competent riders is is difficult uh, to judge from the outside you know yeah for sure and um, regarding Honda with Takanaka Nakagami, I saw him as a test rider next year because I thought Ayagura will move up. And I don't think that Stefan Brader isn't particularly doing a good job. I just believe he is, uh, or the whole Honda team was bailed out by Marcus for so long that they forgot how to work. And um, yeah, which brings us a little bit to the next topic, which is Moto2. We had uh, Ayagura and uh, and Augusto Fernandez in the championship fight, still basically one point or half a point apart. It can't get any tighter than this. Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, regarding the whole Honda situation, when you imagine yourself in Ayagura's position, would you have done the same as he did and said, uh, I don't want to fuck with sprint races. I don't want to fuck with Honda. I just stay in Moto2 in my comfort zone. Or would you say it? Okay, fuck it, I will go.
1: I would have gone honestly. I think um, you can look at situations like Joe Roberts. He had the opportunity to come up to Aprilia for twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but now he's you know nowhere in Moto two again, and I think his Moto GP dreams could be over. And I think if you take that GP offer, you can always go back to Moto2. I think any Moto2 team would take a GP rider, whether you're finishing P20 or, you know, even P25 on some weekends. Like uh, I spoke to Darren Binder over the weekend and Darren Binder, you know, as much as we clown him for crashing and stuff, like he's um, he's learning and I think he could do something in Moto2. <laughs> it's unconventional, but we've seen people like the Lowe's brothers do something similar, where he's just not gelling with the bike, or you know, he just needs to develop as a rider. And I think in Moto Two, he he could do something. And he he had did confirm to me that he does have a Moto Two seat next year.
0: Yeah, as the talk is uh, that
1: he goes to Intact. I don't know if yeah, we I can I,
0: officially confirm it. Uh... I,
1: I can't confirm it. I'm not sure. I mean, you're the German here. You might be able. To, you probably know more than me.
0: Yeah, I don't know more than you, but the common uh, direction where everybody is heading is uh, is Integ GP, and this isn't a secret. Go to everything Motor racing's Instagram page, and you have a list of where people expect certain riders to go next season. So uh, this is not a, some this is not a secret, you know, and um, yeah, what Darren Binder. Let's be 100% honest here right now and forget all the bullshit. He is doing a good job. He's on a very, very bad bike, which is a good bike for rookies usually. But in comparison to the KTMs, he uh, not the KTMs, to the Ducatis, he's on a bad bike. And he is uh, in a very unfortunate situation where he has a one-year contract uh, going from Moto3 to GP. And he is doing well. And I believe if you gave him like three, four years, like they did with Jack Miller, he could be a very good rider in the class because he obviously has talent. He has his downsides where, first of all, my issue with him is that he got the MotoGP contract, which isn't his fault at all. Because if I was him, I would have taken it as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I don't like uh, many of his antics on track. So I like to clown him for this, but uh, with all the memes and shit uh, to the side, he's a very competent rider and he should get another opportunity in uh, MotoGP, but the whole Suzuki exit wasn't necessarily uh, fortunate for I the whole I think
1: seeing him fight with Aaron Canet Ayagura and um, yeah, Pedro Acosta next year could be really interesting. Obviously him and Pedro know each other from... Uh, moto three and i think pedro will probably let him through on track a couple of times because of what darren bid darren binder did for pedro in um 2020 but yeah let's 2021 see. oh sorry yeah so yeah <laughs> Covid is just one big blur for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> i still i still think the 2020 season is happening
0: <laughs> There uh yeah i mean the this was such a weird period of time because you could go to a GP weekend and nobody knew who was in front. I mean, now you can say, okay, I I assume Pecker will be at the front. I assume Jack Miller and Ine Bastianini. Fabio is always a candidate for a uh, a podium. Aleish is always there, but 2020 was so wild.
1: Yeah. I don't know how Joanne ended up doing that. Well, he got the one win, but he was just on the podium consistently. I personally would have preferred um, Morbidelli to have won that one. I think that would have shown Yamaha, you know, who's boss. I think now, you know, he's just, his head's not there. You know, you can tell when a rider shaves their head that they're not having a good time. And (laughs) I mean, Morbidelli's had that trademark hair for years, but he's just struggling so much on the Yamaha. He shaved his head, you know, it's it's not a good sign. I mean, even Celestino Vietti, he shaved his head as well. And he... He seems so demoralized in the paddock. He just walks, doesn't talk to anyone, just head down, just walking slow, not even wanting to get back to his media place fast. Like people ask for photo, he just goes like and then like goes down just like sad, you know. And you just want to go yeah, over there and like pat him on the back and just Yeah, but his his head's gone.
0: It's weird with Vietti because he was so goddamn good at the beginning of the season. And even going into Catalonia, where he had like a little bit of uh, crashes, a little bit of, um, yeah, unfortunate situations for him, but he still came out uh, guns blazing. He was battling with Aaron Canet, and he took him to school in this race. And uh, it's it's a little bit sad to see because whatever he does now, it's end it ends up in a crash, and he's so capable of it. And just to go, uh, to see his mind going in uh in a weird place right now is, is sad to see and i hope that he will recover a little bit uh over the weekend yeah. uh, over the winter break you know because uh he has all the tools to be world champion and it's it's still only his second year he's allowed to make mistakes you know and um yeah i hope he gets his mind right because it's it's a little bit sad to see especially yeah. once your mind goes
1: too. it's 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 yeah it's so hard to get it back i think the uh winter break um will will do him well and uh i hope to see him back fighting at the front like he was this year
0: yeah and uh yeah with the model Two race we had a conversation about this uh after the race which was uh the red flag and um from the tv this is my uh my yeah my view on the thing watching it from a dry couch at home. Uh, You have a wet race, soaking wet, everybody sees it, but it's kind of in a safe place. You don't see many crashes. You had here and there a crash, okay, normal, as you have in a dry race. But it's not that everybody went uh, out crashing, as we've seen in many dry races in Moto2. And it seemed like the track was still in a condition where you could race in a safe manner. It was wet, yes, but it was still manageable. And um, then you get a red flag. I don't hate the red flag because it's it's sometimes better to red flag the session and then uh, do your business and and have no injuries have no huge crashes whatever if there has been some aqua planning and half the field would have uh, crashed in one turn like in portimao this could have ended badly so i don't hate the red flag my issue with the thing is that you want to restart a moto two race with five laps on the same conditions and in the soaking wet which is to me far more dangerous because when you have like. First turn in uh, in our background right now. It's MotoGP, yeah, but Moto2 is basically the same with more riders. And if you have this in such tricky conditions on a five-lap race where everybody is pushing to the absolute maximum, this is an incident yeah. waiting to happen and uh, therefore I hated the idea and thank God the conditions uh, didn't make it possible and they gave half points because this was what I would have wanted in Portimao and it's the same what I would have wanted now. I mean the red flag is difficult to judge. I understand the decision and I don't hate the decision. I'm not here to debate it but the five lap restart I absolutely hate it.
1: Yeah, I think the, um, the conditions on track during the race the corners are fine you know the corners have runoff, but you can see on the um, the straight you know no one ever thinks there's going to be um, anything too bad to happen on the straight but I was watching Philip Salach and he, he basically had a high side mid straight where his rear stepped out and he was just going in a straight line and then like he was his bum was out of the seat mid straight like when it gets to that and then in Buriram the walls are very close on the straight and normally that's okay but it happened to Salach, and then immediately after happened to Ogura. And then you could just see that the race control um acted on those two. Cause if you have a crash on the straight, it's, it's, it's really gnarly, much more gnarly than a crash in a corner. But yeah, uh, yeah bringing on to the the red flag thing, honestly, the, the, it was the right time to red flag for sure. Um, Honestly, I, I didn't, I thought they would do it earlier, but the, the five lap sprint. Yeah. You're, you're very right. You know, when they shortened the race to 16 laps, I, um, wasn't the biggest fan of that. You know, we, uh, we're spectators. We want to see the full race distance. And, um, when you limit it to that, it kind of gives the same effect as the five lap sprint where everyone's going for it. But, um, yeah, having carnage at the first corner, that would have, it would have been bad. You know, the track, it did stop raining, but then started raining again right before the GP race. So that's why they delayed, delayed it further. It was just, I think the, um, the actions were just a little bit too slow. I think they could have got the full race distance in, um, or maybe an, even in another 10 laps of moto two, had they have waited 20 minutes after the red flag and then sent them back out. Still would have moto GP race still would have started at, at the same time as well.
0: Yeah. But the, uh, the thing is, with all the TV rides, I guess it's very, very unfortunate if you have to delay races this late. And um, regarding the straights, what you said, uh, the walls are one point. But when you look at the background, you can barely see the safety car or the marshal in the back. And when you have a crash on the straight, let's say Ayogura or Philip Salaj would have crashed in those instances, and someone comes from behind and absolutely hammers into them, they are dead they are dead on the spot and nobody wants to see this therefore i absolutely don't hate the red flag but um yeah the re- the restart uh, thank god it didn't happen
1: yeah uh, as a rider a red a preventative red flag is the best kind of red flag honestly yeah. you and um i think they did the right thing and half points it is what it is you know um arbelino's not taking the nice 25 bag but uh, a win, still a win, and he was there when it mattered, and uh, kept it upright, uh, unlike uh, Chandra.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit unfortunate for Philip Salaj for example, because the re- red flag came right at the wrong point for him, um, which was after he made the mistake. And um, looking at it live, I thought Philip Salaj won the race because I thought they would count the last lap, which was completed by the whole grid. And yeah, there, I believe that Sanche was in front, and I don't know what the fuck they did. No, uh, Arbelino
1: yeah. did did lead for I think one one full lap right before okay. the red flag.
0: But as they waved the red flag, the whole grid only the top eight riders were uh, over the finish line, so it wasn't like a complete lap. So you have to take the one before for. Yeah, uh,
1: actually, in the classifications, it did say that I think from Kubo and onwards it was they said they were one lap down so i'm not sure exactly where they drew it but um i think salaj was still happy to be on the podium so they're not yeah, going to dispute course. that
0: yeah of course but it's still unfortunate how much does it frustrate you let's let's say you're in a race and you are waiting in second position in a wet race because you can judge the uh, track conditions better when somebody is in front and then you get a red flag and you knew okay fuck, i could have won this because i was setting up the overtake i was just playing it safe right now
1: yeah in the end you know it is the leader like if a crash had happened in a dry race and you're leading the race and they flag it it's it is what it is if you want to have the best chance of winning you have to be in the lead and hold it but obviously you can scheme from second place and it's usually much easier to win a race from second place because you can pass them and have choice of where you want to go, but for Salac if it was a rider like um, Ayagura and Fernandez was in the lead and it was decided deciding the championship, you'd be very, very, very pissed off because it's basically just deciding the championship with one red flag. And thank God it's not the championship contenders, but uh, still not the best situation for Salach. But still, his first uh, Moto Two podium, so.
0: Who's your pick to win the championship?
1: Uh, I think Agura, just because of how focused he was, like, if he can win at his home race, you know, not many riders can win at their home race because of the just the whole like event of it. Um, you look at the Spanish riders, they ride in Spain all the time. And for our homecoming to Japan after three years of not racing there, and then to be able to put it on the top step of the box, there's um nothing that shows a more stronger mentality than that i believe
0: okay yeah i mean uh i kind of like chaos and i think it would be very very fun if Ayugura wins the championship and stays in moto 2 and has to defend it and on the other part i uh, obviously i'm a Rami fan and it, it would be a little bit better, even though it's not Augusto's fault, if Remy was the Moto2 champ and wasn't replaced by another Moto2 champ, you know? You know what I mean?
1: But it's... Yeah, well, I think that would be good for Remy. You know, he'll be like, you know, you're replacing me with some guy who finished second. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, Augusto Fernandez is not just some guy who finished second. He's been really good towards the end of the season. But I think another year in Moto2 with Ayo for Fernandez would have been magical.
0: Yeah, but as you said, you don't pass it up uh, when there's a MotoGP contract, even when exactly. it's a KTM and you know your career is probably
1: going nah, to a g- Gas, 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 gas. It's, yeah. a, it's a different... <laughs> it's going to be different. Bike. Yeah. M- different luck, different luck. <laughs>
0: Everything's going to be better with Gas, Gas. Which uh, yeah. brings us to Albert Arenas and Jake Dixon. You have some uh, souvenirs uh, which you brought from Thailand, so talk a little yeah, bit about um, it
1: grab the uh I got a slider from Jake Dixon that was very nice of him I was gonna get my sunglasses signed by them because we uh, wear the same glasses and uh, it didn't work so he's like come back tomorrow I'll grab something else for you so I just waited outside his pit he came out two sliders I'm like nice that's awesome Next, Jake and then he was like uh, happy for a chat I'm just like there standing just saying thank you but he's just standing there telling me about everything he was just so it seems so happy to be there. And then as a spectator, that's what you really want to see. And for Arenas, um, I actually saw Arenas, uh Thursday night and um, was at the same restaurant as him just eating and went over and said hi and good luck for the weekend, basically. And yeah, that was, that was cool. But later that night I went to, um, to uh, a local mall in Buriram and saw Sergio Garcia trying to, pay for his ice cream and it wasn't working his credit card wasn't working so I said to Sergio no d- don't worry mate I got you and then I, I paid him it was like like four, four or five euros and then um, he's like okay um, tomorrow morning you come to my pit I'm like yeah sure why not that's the best ice cream I've ever bought <laughs> so that um, that kind of formed our little bond with Sergio and then I had ice cream with him chatted to him about you know, his championship hopes, obviously not looking too good after this weekend, but he's really focused, even though he had the biggest ice cream I've ever seen. (laughs) Like I thought those Moto3 guys had to stay super light, but he's having like a triple scoop, full chocolate cone sort of thing. I don't know. Anyway, I go back um, Saturday morning to see him and I just chat to him a lot. He invites me into the pit. I get to film like Jake Dixon going out on the Moto2 bike. So just chilling out, eating an apple while he's just showing me around the pit. And then yeah, I spoke to him after every session. And then after the race, you know, I spoke to him. He's like, you know, what can I do? You know, it kind of, you know, Adrian Fernandez, you know, messed up his whole championship just in one corner. And I think most riders would have been, really pissed off, but he had a really calm mentality and he knows he's going to a pretty decent team for Moto 2 next year. And of course he wanted to do the title, but I think he knows it's it's time to just go up and have a new challenge without these guys taking him out.
0: I guess sometimes it's easier when it's not your fault.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um that that is a very um good point. Like if you're just in contention for a um like a podium or something and you have a mechanical or something it's a lot easier than crashing out on your own although you always wonder what could have been the um the mood after is like uh what can i do what can i do whether if you tuck the front going into the final corner and you're leading the race that's you're never going to forget that
0: yeah, I mean, the only thing which solves these problems is kind of the same with Fabio and Aragon is starting on pole. But even this doesn't uh, save you sometimes, let's say, Takanakagami and uh, Catalonia, you know, and these things happen. But usually it's a good uh, a good solution to start in front and not mid-pack. But um, that's easier said than done, I guess, no?
1: Yeah, especially in Moto3 where um, both practice sessions were a little bit wet towards the beginning and then dried off towards the end. And if you're not super confident in mixed conditions, then um, you'll end up in Q1 and then anything can happen. So many games were played in Q1 in Buriram, you know, such long straights, they want to be in the toe. And I just saw like about eight riders, I think basically parked, like standstill. And I think Dorna should look into that one because that was pretty gnarly from what i've seen and i think you um made a meme about it of them right on the very edge of the circuit next to the gravel trap and like yeah basically at turn 12 it was even worse because they were doing that on circuit
0: yeah moto three is an absolute disaster to quote joel kelso um because it's what what do you do if you're a rider you know um, a you're isan Guevara going out in q1 and everybody is following you i mean not a single soul was in the pits or anywhere on the circuit they were all behind isan Guevara. it was like in a race what do you do when the slipstream gives you a uh, half a second you know and uh you can't tow these guys around but on the other hand when you go uh off track to let them pass they are not passing you they're going off track with you so you're in a very very unfortunate situation there which to me can't be can't be handled because when let's say you're isan Guevara and you're going wide and everybody goes wide with you do you penalize everybody but Isangivara Guevara? because they're doing the same you know but it's and they can just say isan... they needed
1: to go wide anyway yeah yeah, it's, it's very difficult. I think the best thing to do would be a super pole first. That would be great. And then, secondly, I think having a minimum lap time in Moto 3, especially for qualifying, would be uh, quite interesting. You know, where they, they can't basically cruise. If you want to go slow, it has to be, you know, uh, fast in the two sectors or three sectors before the pit entry. And then you can go slow in that final sector if you're coming into the pits. And I think that minimum lap time should be probably the 107% rule. I mean, that's pretty fast for some people like Anna Carrasco. But I'm honestly watching her ride. She's no slouch. You know, she's really quick and she's just missing that one or two tenths every corner. And honestly, watching her ride, I think it was quite amazing, you know, because she looks just as good as the other guys through the corners. She's just not exiting as fast, I believe, but she's doing a lot better in person than I thought, you know, visually.
0: Yeah. And let's um, be honest. Let's be honest. Everybody yeah. who races in Moto three is a very, very, very capable motorcycle rider. It's just the comparison is then a little bit off when you're compared to Isan Guevara or Sergio Garcia.
1: Yeah. And, uh, Honestly, I think for just women in general, she's doing a really good job. You know, like my mom at the circuit, she really loves the the women in the racing. And in Thailand, we have this woman rider called Muglada, who's uh, an absolute ripper on the 600. And she had the 600. She actually, I think she still has the 600 CC lap record around Buriram, which is a 138, I think. And that's compared to Chantra on a Moto2 bike. I think he did 135 uh, mid for his pole lap. And she's doing 138 on a uh, 600 with um a standard engine. Like she's really, really good. And I think just for women in general that want to get into the sport, I think she's doing a, a great job, even if she's finishing towards the end of the field.
0: Yeah, I think it's... It's a bit weird that Ana Carrasco was the one who got the seat because I felt always like Maria Herrera was the better one of those two. But it's always good for the sport to have this diversity there because we talked about uh, all the problems women have in the paddock and these are things who can be tackled when you have somebody like Ana Carrasco or uh, somebody like Maria Herrera who are role models to young girls who aspire young girls and the whole women team in Aragon with uh, Maria Herrera was a very, 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 very good thing. And um yeah, when you take all things into, into consideration, it's, uh, it's always great for the, for the sport when you add diversity, you know, think of Lewis Hamilton in formula one.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um yeah, they're both doing a really great job. And we saw in Aragon that um, Maria Herrera, obviously a bit rusty on the Moto3 bike, but bringing it back every session. So if she gets a full-time seat next year, I'll be uh, very happy. And I think the sponsors like to have some diversity in the class as well. Yeah, and, of course. Um, Yeah, that brings us on to kind of our, our, one of the newest teams in Moto3, the, uh, the Vision Track team. And it's Michael Laverty's academy, designed for British riders um, coming up from the British Talent Cup, and gives them a place to go, kind of in Grand Prix. You know, there's a lot of Spanish teams and Italian teams that like to take riders straight from uh, Junior GP or the CIB in Italy, but this um this class is just designed. I mean, this sorry, this team is designed for British riders, and I spent a lot of time over the weekend with Scott Ogden and Josh Watley, and they're both very um top guys but both very focused I think Scott is um is going to be further up fighting for top 10s next year and Josh he, he he honestly said to me that he um was not supposed to be in Moto3 for another two years but with the junior GP age restrictions coming in I'm not sorry not junior GP that with the Moto3 age restrictions coming in he just wanted to get in the class so when the time was right he could be in there and I think that kind of brings us uh, the, the lens onto the junior GP and the age restriction now in Moto three, where you have to be 18 when most riders in junior GP are ready at 16 or 17, but then they have to spend another 250,000 euros each year for another season in junior GP. It's, it's going to cost families probably another 500,000 euros to get their kid to the world championship. And then, you know, in the that two years more injuries could happen. A um a rider can lose motivation by just racing in the same class every year, and I think it's not very good for the sport. But I mean, some of the Moto Three riders believe that it's just don't want to have to look like they're doing something.
0: Yeah, I talk with Joe Kelso a lot about this. And also yeah. the downsides, the upsides of all and he said something really interesting which I would never thought uh think of by myself, which was when you're eighteen and you're racing in Model Three, it's your decision. When you're fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, there are people, supposedly, he didn't mention any names, who died who didn't even want to be in the championship because their parents forced them to be there. And at least you can guarantee when you're 18, you're doing this because you want to do it. And I guess it's, it's a very, very tricky question, which is, you know, you can, can do an age limit, of course, but it won't solve any of the issues except like one or 2%. But, This is a really interesting point. And uh, Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that one before. I think that's. Yeah. If you have time, listen to the Joel Kelso podcast because he has some uh, great insights there. And also, we talked about the whole uh, Moto 3 thing where he said uh, the Moto 3 is a disaster. And uh, my solution, like for a couple of years now, would be the bikes right now are uh, 250cc bikes with like 80 kilogram more or less in weight. Keep the bikes basically as they are right now, but give them 300 cc's, which would A, benefit all the manufacturers. You could bring in new manufacturers because all the road bikes are 300 cc. You almost see no 250, at least in Europe. And uh, maybe in Southeast Asia, it's a little bit different. And also you yeah. would give them a little bit more horsepower, which could neglect uh, or minimize the slipstream effect a little bit more where you don't have these big groups anymore where those incidents yeah. tend to happen
1: honestly I've, I've thought about this and i think the way to do it is just to make design a fairing i think people more like with more expertise in um like aerodynamics can probably do this but they can make the fairing so they create such dirty air that it's almost impossible to follow and because the air behind will be actually faster and more like hitting um, worse air than being in clean air. That could help it, but it would maybe make racing shit. I guess they have to find the happy medium between those. But I would like to see a super twins sort of class in Moto3, maybe with um, twin cylinder, maybe up to 500cc engines. I think the Moto2 class is good and... With the triple and the 765 but i think something around 500 cc would be better still the lightweight class but um yeah just a little bit more um powerful and less reliant on the slipstream
0: yeah i can't remember who it said i believe it was loris bass but i can't remember it could be totally wrong but uh some Buddy who uh, has a fair amount of respect in the motorcycle community said it's far safer to go into world Supersport 600 than to go into the 300 because the 300 are so heavy and they have so little power that it's almost impossible as a rider to make a difference that you have those incidents uh, where people unfortunately injure themselves or die or whatever um because the bikes aren't giving you the room to be safe, and it's actually safer to be on a six hundred and to be on the three hundred.
1: Yeah, honestly, um, that's uh very true. Uh, that's why I'm I'm on four hundreds now. But even in Thailand, we our four hundreds are special. They're um around seventy horsepower instead of the usual uh fifty five that you get in Super Sport three hundred. So we got a little bit more power to play with but um the slipstream is obviously um yeah very uh, gnarly but it's a national championship so the gap in riders ability is a bit larger than you see in the world championship so it's generally safer and that's where i think the uh, world championship should be yeah 600s up
0: i like the old moto too very much they were, uh, to me, one of the purest bikes, uh, on, in, at least in my lifetime, where you had no electronics, you had no traction control, no wheelie control, you had no rider devices, you had no winglets, yada, yada, yada. It was just everybody basically on the same bike who's the best rider. And it was yeah. fun. And the way they were sliding into the corners, it was so beautiful.
1: Yeah, now the, um, the Triumph engine doesn't produce as much engine brake, so you don't see that nice slide anymore. But the triple gives it more uh, linear power. So in the end, it, it's a nicer bike to ride because it doesn't have that really steep power band like the 600 does.
0: How much does your bike weigh?
1: My bike is 146 kilograms. With fuel or without? Um, well, it's just minimum weight after qualifying
0: okay so you add fuel for the for the race and it gets like to yeah
1: we we calculate and it's about well we uh you um completely full of fuel for a race it's about 153 and then we usually go to 146.5 we do our fuel calculations very uh close
0: okay good Yeah, yeah so the the ratio from weight to power is uh as usual, uh, not that significant as in Moto 3 or Moto 2, for example, because it's a world championship. Of course, it's different, yeah. especially Moto 3, uh, Moto GPM, sorry, where they have 300 horsepower and the bike weighs 150 kilograms. Uh, it's basically the same weight as your bike, but uh, five times more horsepower.
1: With, uh, yeah, like triple or quadruple the amount of horsepower.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And uh, yeah, but uh, going back to to uh, Moto3, there are a few things I would like to ask you. First of all, Sergio Garcia in the uh, Moto3 championship fight, he had a very difficult second half of the season. What do you make from his uh, approach to the race? Is he kind of done with the whole championship thing or... Uh, what's what's his state of mind? Because I can imagine that it's difficult if basically your two-year uh, teammate is uh, taking you to school in almost every race when you are supposed yeah. to be the more experienced one.
1: He knows in Moto3, it's the luck of the draw. And he knows very well that he'll make the difference when it comes to Moto2. And I think he's got his sights set on beating Guevara next year. And I think this year he seemed... A little bit in terms of like he's uh, he has acceptance now for how the championship's going, and that could unlock some new performance hopefully in qualifying for him in Australia, but in the end um he's starting to ride off the championship for this year for sure
0: okay and uh what's what's their relationship like
1: um i not once did I see them talk no okay. So,, uh,
0: you can imagine that it's ba- they're basically not best friends, yeah, because
1: Sergio Garcia and Albert Reus were talking a lot. and then also um Jake Dixon and Sergio having a little bit of a chat. But, yeah, Izan was the one who I didn't see talk to any other writers uh, in the Aspar team,
0: yeah, I guess Izan is not there to make friends. He's there to make ws, and he's doing it uh, pretty consistently. <laughs> and uh yeah preseason i uh, said uh, isan guevara is my championship pick it's looking good right now but uh he seems to have this little edge over sergio and over over foggia that when he's in front he just has this raw pace where nobody even in moto three where the slipstream is so important, nobody can give uh him anything
1: yeah and i mean even even in buriram we saw a leading group of three pull away and even Foggia just yeah your meme sums it up perfectly like Foggia when he's in the championship fight you know he's nowhere but when he's not not in it he's a beast and the same thing sort of happened uh, in 2021 yeah last year where towards the end he started really racking up the wins and it's just too late
0: yeah yeah I mean uh, last year was a bit of a bummer because uh, I thought that Dennis Foggia versus Pedro Acosta in Portimao in the last lap would have been an absolute banger. And I believe that Pedro would have won it, because Pedro yeah. has this has this maturity where he's above everything. And mm-hmm. it's it's a kind of an, a feeling you get from him that you get from a Mark Marcus, from a Vanatino Rossi, that um, he's above, head and shoulders, above everybody else. And uh, even when you remember in the free practice where he was like uh, waving to Dennis Foggia where he was just playing mind games and that was awesome uh, he was, honestly he, yeah he was beating him in uh, in Portimao when the first time they came so I was really looking forward to it and Darren Binder fucked it up for me and I attended the race live this was even more of a bummer but <sighs> uh, yeah
1: <laughs> it's racing it can happen and honestly I think it's a shit thing. I think Pedro Acosta probably would have won that title. And I also think that, you know, Darren Binder going straight to the Leopard Garage is it kind of shows what kind of guy he is. You know, he he owns up to it. I know it's unfortunate. You know, as soon as you take out one person in in motorcycle racing, it's it's not a good feeling, but it happens again, then your reputation's there. And once it's there, you'll it affects you sort of. And I think that's kind of what happened with Darren and you just get like a little bit demoralized and then people kind of say, that's what you do. So if it happens, you don't really care, but he still cared and he had the, he had the balls to go to see Leopard and obviously they weren't ready for him yet. <laughs> they told him to, you know, go away to put it nicely, but Yeah.
0: What are your expectations for Josh Watley in the long term? Do you think he can make it in the championship, or do you think it's just he's just there for fun?
1: He's got the backing. Um, but he did say to me, if he's not in GP, he's gonna quit racing. You know it's it's his it's what he's he's all about, you know, he wants to stay in Grand Prix and he knows that he'll be better once he gets onto a Moto2 bike, but he just needs to cut his teeth in um, Moto3 first. And he said probably two or three more years in Moto3 before he even considers going up to Moto2. How tall is he? He's um, probably about 170, but he's a little bit of a stocky rider. reminds me of a um, Remy Gardner, barring the height.
0: Okay, yeah, Remy is is a little bit bulky from uh, uh f- naturally bulky. You know, it's not like he he told me he barely goes to the gym. He just just running and he's really muscular from, um, yeah, just being yeah. A motorcycle
1: I think racer. if you look at like a BMX rider or something, they've got the the fat calves, you know, for pumping the bike, and they're like really stocky, but they're really still fit. And I think Remy's just got that build where he's he's just a bit buff, you know, from from birth
0: yeah it is what it is and um is vision track uh, thinking about a moto two team
1: um not that i know of but uh they're definitely trying to build on their moto three campaign i mean um scott's got a decent tally of points i think he's got 21 or 22 points which is not too bad for your first year in moto three obviously he's still learning quite a lot he's still really young as well as Josh, who's you know, they're both. I think born in two thousand five. Actually, I think Josh is two thousand five. You know, that's it's it's really soon. When you when you we think about two thousand five, it's not too long ago. He's still only seventeen years old. He's got plenty of time. You know, you look at John McPhee still in Moto three at age twenty eight. You know, if you take that as a age limit, which well which it is for the class. You know, Josh has plenty of time to make it work out.
0: Yeah, I believe it's really important when you have a young rider and put them into a team which is competent, which develops them, because it's not only the the development of the rider in itself, it's also the development of your work ethic, of your personality, of uh, your maturity, how you deal with things. And I believe that it's very, very important for... Either Scott or um, or Josh to stay in a familiar uh, workplace where they can grow as young men into adults. And uh, yeah, regarding Joel Kelso, he's switching to Bristol. And I felt a little bit not bad about it because I I thought, okay, why not stay there? Because CIP uh, seemed like a great team and all of this. And yeah, they gave him a shot uh, last year. So I didn't really understand it. And He explained it to me, like, um, when you have teams in Moto3, you don't know why, for example, Ayo or GasGas is so much faster than CIP or whoever on a KDM. Um, And you see it with David Munoz, he's putting the team uh, out of uh, nowhere. And you just don't understand it be- how some teams are faster than others, but after seeing the CIP video, I'm not that ungrateful that he uh, got out of there. So I'm wishing okay. Kelso all the best for the future and also Scott Ogden and uh, Josh Watte, I believe. Yeah, I think just that... one more
1: thing on Josh is that he actually, I think he lost a lap because someone cut in front of him or like pushed him wide during a qualifying or yeah, I think it was a qualifying run. And he would have been on for, a, you know, a time that would would have been probably within a second of the top guys. And he just handled it, you know, like really maturely. Like, you know, he knows he had the speed at that time, but he just didn't pull it together. But um, in the end, the race didn't really go his way. He struggled a bit with the heat. And uh, yeah, I think he'll... I think he'll do well in um, Phillip Island, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's important to soak all these things in and learn from it and build over on it uh, over a couple of years. And I'm really looking forward to uh, Casey O'Gorman because... He can race. He's really good, especially at the beginning of the year in the rookies cup. He was so good, and uh, he's racing with Vision Track in the ETC. And I really hope that they support him because he is uh, struggling financially a little bit. Motorcycle racing is expensive, as you uh, know better than basically everybody out here, <laughs> and um, I really hope that uh Michael Leverty and um the whole team give him uh, the support he needs and support him over his, uh, on his way to the model three championship, because I yeah. believe that Casey can really do something when you're out there in the rookies cup and you're battling with Rueda, with Colin Vaya you, you can race, you're good. And he just needs to, uh, needs to have a good surrounding where he don't has to um, he doesn't have to struggle about uh, finances where he uh, can go to school and learn racing and be uh, not as stressed with the traveling and i really hope that the vision track team can be a good family for him to develop the talent which is obviously there
1: i think it's perfect kind of having two rookies and then the brand new team as well Because I know the team boss Taylor McKenzie. It's his first year in the Grand Prix paddock running a team, and then the mechanics there. You know, it's their first year with that team, and everyone's very new, so they're not putting any pressure on each other, and it's. I think it's a good environment for them to develop.
0: Yeah, it's. I guess it's. Uh, with everything in life, the same when you're in a comfortable. Uh, when you have comfortable surroundings good people to work with you're generally going in a positive direction and if you have a toxic environment where you get blamed for example when you don't have a good race or where something happens which wasn't your fault and uh, you get uh, kicked and punched after your bike breaks down um, then it's not necessarily the best for riders development you know
1: yeah exactly
0: so, uh, what's your plan for the rest of the season? How's the whole thing in Thailand working?
1: Uh, well, we got uh, one more round for the rest uh, for the rest of the season, and um, hoping to put a just a late charge for race wins. I mean, I had a few podiums in the last rounds, and yeah, my I had a pretty tough start to the year with uh, a mechanical and a um. Just a race where I didn't have enough track time, and when I finally got the track time, I was you know within one point seven seconds of the all time lap record. So um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I'm I'm ready to get back on track after watching the GP bikes go around. I just I know I can go a lot faster, and I'm I'm hoping to do it on uh, on track.
0: I wish you the best luck. I hope uh, you you forgive me that I'm not very educated on Thai motorcycle racing. It's so, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what's your plan for next season then?
1: Um, next season, still uh, undecided, but it looks like I could be uh, staying with my current team and making a title charge on the four hundreds.
0: Okay, but your plan is definitely to stay in Thailand.
1: Um. Well, last year I did Moto America and that was really cool, but uh, I didn't gel with Dunlops too well. So um, maybe looking at Australia because they use Pirellis uh, or staying in Thailand on Bridgestones or Pirellis.
0: Okay. Therefore, uh, I wish you the best of luck uh, for the next race. When exactly is it?
1: Um, third to fourth November.
0: Okay, perfect. So keep me updated, please. And uh, so. I wish you all the best for next season. Thank you very much for joining me and this exciting chat. I learned a lot of new things and I hope you enjoyed it as well.
1: Yeah, it was, it was good fun.
0: Yeah, so maybe we can repeat it some someday in the future. It was great talking to you and uh, goodbye, everyone.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.